last thing you really want to do is take away a kid from their parents. We're all afraid of malpractice because there is this crapshoot element in it. Like, you feeling lucky, punk? You know a treatment for myocarditis that I don't know about. Tell me what it is. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it's May, and it's Risk Management Monthly. It's Rick Bucata. Say hi, Rick. Hey, Greg. And uh, so we're going to be coming to you. Uh, we're separated by uh, time and space here a little bit, but uh, we're going to do the best we can. Rick, why don't you start out with some letters? We get letters. Well, I want to first of all acknowledge that uh, my son Dan is doing the recording, who has a child who is... 13 days old now, and uh, I visited this uh, new grandson uh, this past weekend, and it was great fun. And I want to actually, Dan, I, I, I've told Greg this many times before, but I have no idea where you have learned your parenting skills because it clearly <laughs> it didn't me. come from you, Greg. From me, uh, right? Greg, Greg just mentioned the uh, three. Um, most important points in the raising of your child. I want you to pay attention to this, Dan. Go ahead, Greg. What are the three most important points? Number one, when they can sleep through the night, because then then they're tolerable, sleeping through the night. Of course, I was very lucky. My wife breastfed all of our kids, and so I actually slept through the night <laughs> starting day one. Uh, number two is when they can handle their own bowel and bladder problems. That really makes things easier. And it's easier for you as the dad to take them out. No question. And three is when they, you know, get their PhDs at Harvard and they're off the payroll. So those are the three high points in being a parent. But as I was saying, um, Greg, you break one of your own rules in that uh, your kids are never off your payroll <laughs> That's and <laughs> never will be off your payroll. Uh, excuse me, children, <laughs> payroll. Uh, we don't want to go there, Rick. All right, let's get started. We're going to do a few emails. We have not been keeping up as we should. The first one's from Peter Lavasser. What do you think, Is Lavasser? Close enough. Close enough. Anyway, Peter talks about a case where the local ambulance company picked up a patient delivered by helicopter from a trauma accident. And there was no issue there in that the, the, uh, everybody was fine, except one problem. This helicopter landed on the heliport of the hospital. And the ER doc is watching what's going on at the heliport and uh, sees the EMT crew or the paramedic crew intubating this patient in the, on the tarmac before they put him into the helicopter. And the doctor's wondering, geez, I'm wondering whether I need to go out there and do a uh, medical screening examination because they're on the hospital property. And now this doctor obviously is very concerned about the nuances of uh, Amtala here. But Greg, what do you think? Yeah, I think if, if they're doing fine, he hasn't been asked to get involved. I don't think there is a duty on his part at that moment in time. After all, people have landed there before, and it is usual and customary that things can be done without his intervention. And uh, if they were having a problem and they asked him to intervene, I understand that. Then he's got some obligation. But don't think that you have to run out and necessarily handle every one of those problems they didn't come to the emergency department specifically. Well, and I thing, think uh, that's the question. The other thing about this is that these paramedics are operating under the uh, medical control of a base station someplace so that there is some physician involvement in generally. And um, so I, I think that I think that we well, don't have the official Bitterman answer here. This is not this is the semi-official answer. Right. You know, this, adding this up the Greg and Rick, yeah. adding up your and my knowledge of Imtala does not equal a Bitterman. Well, <laughs> you know, you know, then they have to uh, they then they have to subscribe to a better newsletter, Rick. Well, you know, uh, two second graders do not make a fourth grader, Greg. Yes, you yes, remember yes, my phraseology there. Okay, let's move on to. Uh, you want to do the next one? No, I don't have it in front of me, Rick. How about so, Peter but... Bosco? Go ahead, do Peter that. Peter Bosco one. points out that the uh, New York's highest court has determined that physicians do not have the duty to detain an intoxicated person if they appear in control of their faculties. Well, since when is that news? Let's hold off for a second. He's referring to a very famous case now. This is Kowalski versus St. Francis Hospital. Kowalski? 
Kowalski. The bowler. Isn't that that the bowler? (laughs) No, no. That was Golombievsky. But the the problem in this case is that we don't want to be lulled into thinking that he was drunk and sloppy and they didn't have to hold him. That isn't the case. What happened in this particular case was the patient came in asking for detox. He's waiting around, and like everything in hospitals, it takes time. So he decides to do what? Take off. Now, taking off is not a good thing, but they had examined him. He was awake, alert, could cooperate with them. He was able to walk. He had control of his faculties. He had the magic word, Rick. He had capacity. Now, the reason this whole question came up was they did the one thing we sometimes people tell people not to do. They drew an initial blood alcohol. It was elevated. So but what? It's probably, it's, yeah, but it's probably always elevated in this guy. But what they did was they did an exam which said he had capacity. And what the court ruled was if this patient had capacity, the emergency doctors had no right to hold him against his will. And it was very interesting what the, the defense said in, in the finding. By the way, there was a bad outcome. Kowalski, uh, <laughs> we think, probably went out and drank more, uh, then wandered into the road and got hit by a car and is now a quadriplegic. So there's a huge medical expense thing here that was part of the issue. But what the court said was if assaulting a person is against the law, then there was certainly no obligation to assault a person to hold him if he had capacity and he was able to protect himself. So this is a victory for emergency medicine, but it shouldn't be viewed, and this is the wrong way of looking at, that everybody who's got alcohol in their breath, uh, you don't have any obligations to take care of them. That's just wrong. Well, I think that you know the beginning of this is a no-brainer. You can't hold somebody who you've determined to have capacity against their will. I mean, that's assault with a deadly weapon or something like that. Now, you know, it just so happens that this guy had a very, very, very bad outcome. But that doesn't change the legal obligation here. And I'm really surprised that this, well, you know, they're trying to find out who's going to pay the bills here. Of course. I I mean, I understand Kowalski's problem. He's got medical problems, all that sort of thing. And and his people said this. My guy came there for detox. He had like a blood alcohol twice the regular limit. And you let him out. That's twice the limit for driving a car. Rick, I know that and you know that. But don't ever think that that kind of intelligence and logic ever gets fought out in court. But in this case, the Supreme Court, the state of um, this New York, rather, said that, no, they had no obligation if you have capacity. And that's the way this should the way it should be said. You shouldn't say, well, you don't have any duty to intoxicated patients. That's like saying you don't have a duty to a patient who's encephalopathic because of meningitis. Sure you do. But this guy uh, and the nurse's note and the doctor's notes were consistent that he was able to cooperate, understand, walk, talk, etc. Yeah, Greg, those of who, who have listened to this thing for anything more than about 20 minutes would have known the outcome of this case. And what made it interesting was all of this money that has to be spent to support this person. But, you know, I don't even think that there was... This, this is this is 101. Come on, Greg. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know. Okay, uh, so the state of New York did what they were supposed to do. Thanks a lot. But I don't want anybody else thinking uh, uh, if they're drunk, you don't have to go through the usual and customary examination skills. You so do. It, um, now, we're getting these emails, and it would be really, really, really helpful if when you send in your email, you said, it's okay to use my name or please don't use my name. Now, we can generally figure this out to some degree. Like, we didn't hesitate to mention that uh, this was sent in by Peter Bosco because it's got nothing to do with Peter, I don't think, in terms of he's not going to lose his contract, his job, whatever. The next one I'm going to withhold the name on because um, there may be some issues here. This is about a patient who complained about being charged for Lovenox that was given because this small hospital did not have access to ultrasonography after catches 3 p.m. 
and the patient was suspected of having a DVT. So they say their administration is now questioning their limited access to ultrasound. Apparently, other hospitals in the area have 24-7 ultrasound. They're having a meeting to consider allowing calling in a tech at the discretion of the emergency physicians. Well, lordy, lordy, I mean, uh, if what happens if you have an, uh, a potential ectopic pre- uh, pregnancy or something like that? So it, it appears that there is access but they want to limit access, so they don't have to pay overtime or have people take call or something to that <laughs> effect. So the doctor notes that the risk of not having ultrasound available 24-7 and the potential risk of giving one shot of Lovenox are, are, are there. But, you know, the issue with the Lovenox is, well, maybe you, somebody's going to kick you in the, in the calf and then you're going to get a compartment syndrome because you're on Lovenox or something like that. Um, others dismiss this as an unrealistic, you know, risk. It's not, these people who are in Lovenox are not going to have a subdural hematoma or something like that. And uh, point out that the patient would require major trauma to develop a compartment syndrome. So the doctor thinks we may have uh, noted, he wants to know whether, what, how much trauma it takes to develop a compartment syndrome. Now I know that I don't know the answer to that. And I know you don't, but that doesn't stop you from giving an answer. Yes, it certainly does. It never does, has Rick. in the past. It never has in the past. Uh, let's point out this, that we know that the risk with the Lovenox is very low, but this raises a much bigger issue, Rick. If you're going to run a hospital, you kind of in the game, you're not. Uh, we're talking now about, uh, you know, 15, 20-year-old technology. If you don't have it and somebody else does, you know, I think the real ethical and moral decision here is to the doc if they're in an area with other hospitals that they can get to easily, you know, maybe it's not unreasonable if you can't get a tech in to send this person to another hospital. Here's what you shouldn't do is give somebody lower, a lower standard of care just because it's at the convenience of the hospital administration. I think that's the problem. I don't care if the tech's at home, but when they get the call, they better come in and handle the situation. It seems to me that in 2014, isn't that reasonable standard of care, Rick? Well, yes and no. Uh, It is pretty clear that ultrasound techs are, if you want a job, become an ultrasound tech. They're not, uh, 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 you know, coming out of the trees. and And I can tell you that our hospital, we had an issue about finding techs who are willing to take call at night and uh, frankly, uh, they if we kind of press them, they'd say, fine, thank you very much. I got a job down the street. And this is in here in, in metropolitan Los Angeles. Now, what about hospitals that are out in the sticks? Uh, what is their access to a 24-7 uh, technologist? Now, it appears that it was kind of like selectively available. So I think that that kind of makes this a little bit different. But I think that there are going to be hospitals that don't have um, – access to this technology all the time. I do think it puts people at risk because you've got cases of torsion, you've got cases of of ectopics, you've got other uh, kinds of things where you need to know the diagnosis in a timely manner. And the standard is to use these uh, other devices at least some of the time. Now, you know, you can make the case that torsion doesn't have to be having an ultrasound done. You could just do something else, send them for surgery, and uh, you can do a CAT scan for maybe a, a ectopic or, you know, some other studies. But I think that this is not a slam dunk. It's not a slam dunk here. And I, I can see where if there's two or three hospitals in the area, there's a serious question whether what they should be doing each of those nights. A lot of medicine is run for the convenience of the docs, the techs, and the, and the hospital, and not for the patient. And as you point out, I think it'd be hard to defend a, uh, a woman vaginally bleeding who had a positive pregnancy test that you didn't get an ultrasound on. I think that would be difficult to defend. So uh, we agree that there is uh, there is an issue here, and it sounds like they have access, but they're trying to limit access for either not burning out these texts or not having to—hopefully I hopefully the issue is, is not payment. And one of the other options is to have— the three or four local hospitals kind of go in and say, let's have uh, one or two techs take call for all of us. But that's that's way too reasonable. 
Uh, that's never going to happen oh my god rick there you go again thinking it gets you into trouble every time all right next letter this is an issue regarding the um, disclosure this doctor says there is really not much hard evidence to support the belief that early disclosure with an apology can mitigate or completely diffuse the anger and apprehension of an injured party or family so his question revolves about insurance companies how would they view a physician who sits down with a patient or family and acknowledges that a mistake or unexpected medical outcome occurred? How would the company view this admission, and would they be able to defend or deny coverage to the physician on the basis of a failure in the duty to cooperate with the insurance company in the defense of the claim or error? Now, that's right down your alley, Chief. Oh, it is. Uh, in fact, Mike Frank and I debated this exact issue at the ASAP um, Scientific Assembly a couple of years ago. Was it in 1942? Yeah, it was in 42. But at that time, there were 29 states that had I'm sorry laws, which means you cannot use that discussion in any further legal action. I think that's now gone up to 33. But let's, let's, let's look at what we mean by, by disclosure. And I'd, li- I'd like to give a little... Um, and, and this is uh, for Yosef Liebman. He likes things one, two, three, four, five in a list he can take home. So, Yosef, listen. Here are the five A's of risk management prevention with disclosure. Number one, when you acknowledge, what you acknowledge is there may be a problem, but you don't go into all the fine facts. There's a very famous line from Jean Kerr where she says, I make mistakes. I'll be the second one to admit it. What you don't want to be doing is running in, screaming, oh, God, I killed your mother, that sort of thing. You're looking into a question. The apology itself needs to be sincere when it's given. You never ruin an apology with an excuse. All the facts ought to be on the table before you decide whether something's really uh, gone wrong. And you have to assure people that you are going to take care of it. The last one and the one that here Rick Booth met at the University of Michigan and the people who have really pioneered these things have said is appropriate compensation if needed. And they, they take this as a science. They've looked around and said, if you deserve money, we're going to give it to you. But what we're not going to do is be forced into payment when we didn't do something wrong. So those are just some things to kind of take home if you believe it now. Understand there's only three or four papers out there that look at this. And the problem is a lot of them, the first big one, the 99 paper from Kramer, talked about the fact that uh, this is in the annals of internal medicine, but it talked about a VA system. VA system cannot be equated with the regular hospital system. And uh, these days, the VA is in enough trouble. We're not going to talk about them. There's no question from the pop paper, which was 2003, that in jury selection, juries felt better about hospitals that came out and told the truth early on. You know, they did this survey of, of these people say, what would you think about a hospital that actually told? They said, well, we think that's pretty good. You know, that's not so bad. The Harvard Pilgrim um, uh, healthcare plan has been doing this. And they seem to think that it's better, but you're right. There's, there's no great vast store of knowledge on this, Rick. Well, Dr. Henry, you have successfully, well, you think you have successfully avoided answering the question. The question here, doctor, is what position can the insurance company take when you have spilled the beans and precluded them from doing an aggressive uh, defense of your case and their money? Well, the the insurance company, and I was president of two of them, uh, always has a right to reserve and to make a decision about what they will and will not pay for. But if you told a patient the truth, I think it's going to be very hard for them to uh, deny payment. I think as a general rule, you should work this out in advance with your insurance carrier, however. And there are certain personalities which should not be sent in to talk to the patient. That's that's very clear that there are personalities which don't know how to say I'm sorry without blaming the patient at the same time. And that only throws gasoline on the Well, this uh, is clearly a skill. And I don't think that most emergency physicians have acquired this skill. It's you have to be careful here. 
And the other thing is, is then we've talked about this ad nauseum, is there's a difference between saying I'm sorry and saying it's my fault. And that the states make a distinction. And in California, you're allowed to say I'm sorry, but you're not allowed to say I'm sorry and it's my fault. And so you need to know that the, the nuances in your state. But I think, I think it's frankly, if you can get away with it, it's, it's really, I think, best to say, I'm sorry, we're going to look into what happened and, and don't say anything about fault here because, frankly, I would wind up calling my insurance company as soon as I could. I would get the hospital's risk management people on it. They, uh, and the hospital and the emergency group are not necessarily in sync on this in terms of their motivation. The hospitals are required to do this. Emergency physicians are not required to do this. And so I think that – I think – the idea is we're going to look into this. We're going to look into this. Give them something that they can hang on, uh, on to. But I think you've got to really be so, uh, very, very careful acknowledging any kind of a guilt, especially given the fact that our legal system works the way it does. I'm well, it's sorry. A, Rick, it's adversarial. And one thing we should recognize is that all the papers done almost never take into account an emergency department. They tend to be yeah, other kinds yeah. of scenarios, uh, and that's why I said there's no reason for you to run in and tell someone that you killed their yeah, grandmother. Let's, let's meet in the office of the risk manager. <laughs> well, the fact is it's 9 o'clock at night, and the office is closed. Right, exactly. All right, I'm going to give you a test, Gregory. I'm sorry, so sorry. Patsy Klein. Brenda Lee. Brenda Lee, okay. <laughs> Go ahead. Oh, God. All right, moving on. Here's one. He's concerned the prisoners are coming into the ED for blood alcohols, but nothing else. Is there an EMTALA issue? And I know the answer to this. Yeah, we stopped that <laughs> from right. happening. They don't, they don't come into the ED. You send them directly over to the lab for the out, an outpatient blood draw. That's exactly right. You've got to remember that the EMTALA law says... If a patient presents for to be seen in the emergency department or uh, a request is made on behalf of that person to be seen, you got to see them. But we have thousands of patients every day who head to the laboratories at hospitals yep. and, and get tests done. So you, if you, you're either going to do it right or don't do it at all. And basically the problem here is the sheriff's department doesn't want to pay the bill on that emergency department visit. So I think if the deputy has a question, if the jailer has a question, they want to see the patient seen, then see him. If all they want is a blood alcohol, that can be done at the lab without any problem at all. There you go. This is about a seven-year-old child sprayed in the mouth by a cane toad. So here you go. Well, the venom from a cane toad contains chemicals that have cardiac glycoside activity, which means it'll slow your heart down mm -hmm. and cause blocks and arrhythmias. EKG and lab are normal. Why they were doing lab, God only knows. The patient was stable. The parents want to take the kid home. Poison control is called, however, and in their usual cover-their-butt way, say, observe the child for four to six hours. The um, parents say, you know, he's fine. We, we, don't, we don't want to stay around here four to uh, six hours. The emergency physician says, if you want to sign out, I'm going to call Child Protective Services. He wants to know our opinion. Yeah, this is getting ugly already. What The last thing you really want to do is take away a kid from their parents. I mean, having been through this many, many times. You wanted your kids taken away. <laughs> well, that's my kids. Okay. I'm talking about those that are our patients. Oh. And, and we really don't want to do that if we can avoid it. I think you have to use some common sense and judgment here. If the family is about to take that child out and they're genuinely ill or you're genuinely concerned, then you have to involve law enforcement or child protective services. By the way, by the time Child Protective Services would actually come to your ER in a lot of cities, the four to six hours of observation is over by that period of time. Exactly. Although, frankly, they could have left and been at home and then the police have to go get them and make it makes a project out of this. I, I asked what was the gap between the spray 
into the mouth and and discharging this patient home, they might have already been there for a, a reasonable period of time. I do think that poison control centers are co- giving cover their butt uh, advice in the vast majority of these kinds of, well, keep them around kind of thing. And uh, But I don't think anybody can fault this doctor if he pulls this trigger and, and said, you know, I was concerned and therefore I had to take the next step and call Child Protective Services. I think there's generally a way around this. And I, I think a, a clever doctor could find some way to say, uh, I'm a little concerned about this EKG. I think it may have nonspecific STT changes. Right, exactly. They all have nonspecific. You know, let's let's repeat it in a couple of hours. All I could say is when you escalate these wars, just don't expect that your patient satisfaction score is going to be that great with this particular family. Well, they're not going to be filling in a patient satisfaction score from jail. Yes, I understand. They that. don't send them there. We get another one here. This is about the naloxone law in California. I just got, uh, you know, periodically, I think every three months, the um, Medical Board of California sends to all the doctors in, in the state, uh, here's the l- most recent rules, regulations, updates. And the, by far, the only reason people really read this is because in the back, they have every doctor that has been disciplined in that three-month period. And it's always fun to see if you know anybody on that list. And it's surprising how often you do. In yeah, well, fact, Rick, you, my understanding is you read the list just to make sure your name isn't there. <laughs> isn't that true? Yes, yeah, something like that. Well, anyway, on this most recent one, there was a doctor who I knew. And before, they used to give a little summary of what the doctor was accused of and what the punishment meted out was. Well, they don't do that anymore. Now they give you this long case number, and then you just put this into your computer, and you get to read the entire gory detail Yes, And this was absolutely fascinating about a person who I know. But in any case, I won't get into that. The naloxone law. So now they passed a law in California that says that you are absolved of malpractice, civil, or criminal liability if you give out naloxone to a patient or a family member or some other person who is likely to be in a situation to treat somebody who has a respiratory arrest as a result of an opiate uh, overdose. Now, it's um, not that simple. It also requires that this person that you're giving this stuff to have a very specific instruction with regards to the recognition of respiratory arrests, how to perform ventilation, how to call the EMS. That's a, takes about a half hour. And injecting the medicines. And I read some stuff about this and if you got a bottle of naloxone and some syringes like you were a diabetic in the, uh, just the same way, it should cost about $3 a dose for a shot of naloxone, which is off patent. However, however, there's got to be a way for Big Pharma to make money in this. And up steps the makers of the EpiPen. They uh, made a product which was fast-tracked by the FDA in three months called Avizio. It sounds like it's Italian. Right. Easier. It's an injector that talks to you. It has two EpiPen-like devices that you can shoot through your thigh and the clothing. But when you open this thing, there's a woman's voice that says, here's everything that you need to do. One of the things, uh, there's the two doses, and they say, repeat the dose every two to three minutes until EMS arrives. Now, one of the interesting things, this is written up in the New York Times, by the way, my information on this. They basically said, well, what is this stuff going to cost? And it turns out the EpiPen is $400, $400. You don't mean the EpiPen, you mean the Narcan pen here. No, no. The EpiPen made by this company is $400. Right. And there's right. no talking woman on it either. Right, right, right. The exactly. talking woman, they, they would not answer the uh, New York Times question about the uh, anticipated cost, but they anticipated that since EpiPen is 400, that this thing is going to be at least 500 simoles. Uh, so you may choose, it may be cheaper to do something else like splash cold water in their face or put ice cubes in their groin than to qualify 500 bucks for this thing. Yeah, before we get into too many uh, details on the cost, that's not really the issue here. The issue is if EpiPens are available for people who are going to have allergic reactions, that sort of thing, 
and we have a defined patient population which is most likely to need this medication, should we be allowed to just let them have a prescription, take it home, have it available? The cost is another issue, and by the way, we should be able to get this cost down. But when you think about it, we do know who's using heroin. We do know the people who are on opioids. Is there something wrong with letting their parents or whoever it is, their friend, uh, inject them? Because we know when the EMTs arrive, that's going to be given at that but, moment in time. But they're not laymen. This is these are laymen, and so I mean, I'm, I understand. I'm I'm also in support of this thing, but you need some legislation in each state to support the use of this stuff to uh, limit liability. The other thing is, is there's no reason. In fact, in this article in the um, Times, there was a fellow there who's been giving out naloxone and in, syringes for a long, long period. I don't know. I, I don't recall the state that he was in. And that's what the, where they came up with, it should cost $3. And it's like, it, how is it different from insulin? Some people have like, they keep insulin in their refrigerator and they get syringes and they shoot themselves up. But they're not laymen. They've been taught how to do it. So right. this is a kind of a, a breakthrough and is in a response to the overwhelming increase in the use of opioids that's out there. Of course, you know, there's this issue about the New York state, the city law about, you know, the limiting guidelines that limit the uh, use of opioids, which we've, we've talked about in the past. I'm not necessarily in favor of those guidelines. We, we are more than capable. And frankly, the ER has got nothing to do with creating opioid addicts. Nothing. Zero. We don't give out Oxycontin in the ER, for crying out loud. We give you a few Vicodin, for crying out loud. Give us a break. I, I think that's probably right. All right. Uh, did you finish your 10 things list from the last time? Yes, I did the, from the last time. And uh, that's that's well taken care of. But I have some great cases for you, Rick. If you think that things are going away, they're not. And in the old battles, the old battles are still here. Case. This case happens to be Mississippi. I'm not going to tell you who won and who lost yet. Why not? But it, oh, at the well, end. because uh, right, I want you right. to hear the case first. All right, I got it. All right. Now we've got a um, young person who's gone. Well, actually, they've gone to Biloxi, Mississippi, and they went in with abdominal pain. A young person. It was the emergency doc got a um, CT scan. Now, in a young male, I would probably not get one. I just asked the surgeon to come in and take the appendix out. But the CT scan was read as normal by the radiologist. Well, the kid did come back the next day with what, Rick? A ruptured appendix. But the, yeah. but, but the problem is, is that these tests, CT scan, 95% sensitivity, 95% specificity, which means that it is not 100%. There's well, an error here, like in any <laughs> test. It's worse than that. The next day on the overread of this scan, it was considered abnormal. So the emergency doc was also sued in the process and said, wait a minute. Now you're telling me it's an abnormal scan when I saw the kid. The reading that came back, we used to call those the wet readings, said that this is a normal study. And so a lawsuit takes place. And th there's some good news here. Mississippi defense verdict following a confidential settlement with the radiologist. The emergency doc and the hospital are out, were uh, not exonerated but let out of the case. And the uh, radiologist did pay up. So the radiologist also did say, hey, wait a minute. We aren't 100%, just as you said, Rick. They still could have admitted the patient. They could have had a surgeon come in and see the abdomen. That's not the way they ended this case up. They paid some money for the fact that the initial reading of the film was normal. Well, you know, I think there is the uh, opportunity to make the emergency physician culpable here by saying, 
First of all, this case had been going on for three days. Your exam noted rigidity in the right lower quadrant. Your laboratory test showed a white count of 20,000. So uh, why would you- Don't go there, Rick. <laughs> the white count is about as specific well, as Well, no, the, the, it's yeah, the yeah. totality of these things. You add them all up and you say, this is a compelling case of uh, a surgical abdomen located in the right lower quadrant. What do you think it is? And just because you got a normal CAT scan come back, since when does that override all of these other elements that make it clear that this person had something significantly wrong with them? I rest my case. Yes, well, you've done that well. And I guess we have to say that the court in Mississippi at that point in time did seem to find that the uh, physician had a right to depend upon uh, what the radiologist said. They did, they did have reasonable follow-up instructions. I can see where this could be debated both ways. There you go. I, I bet you a nickel that had there been a really incriminating case on the clinical side of this, that they're going to say, doctor, you know, this is a test like all other tests where there is some variability here in their specificity and, and sensitivity. And you, I'm sure you know that. And why would you ignore all of this other information? Um, so I think that you could make it. Now, obviously, they did not make that compelling case. And, um, you know, what's the big deal about missing appendicitis? This comes up over and over. You would think that I don't get it. You know, so what? What You know, what, what, what's the negative outcome here? You got a little, little extra scarring there down there. Yeah. Well, I have the other view, which is take everybody's appendix out. If it's close, just take it out. Then they can join the space program and or, they can do other things. Or go to Antarctica, you know. Kind they of they thing. go to Antarctica, not a problem. Want another case? Give me a harder one than that. All right. Here is a harder case. Uh, failure to diagnose. See, we say a harder case, but you know what? Appendicitis, when I started in this business, caused lawsuits and now it's 40 years later and there's still lawsuits. Here's a tough one. A child or a teenager is playing uh, softball, is the catcher, is a hit in the face, in the side of the face with a, with a ball as it comes off the bat. Now, they took this teenager to the hospital. A CT scan revealed a left maxillary sinus, anterior wall fracture, essentially non-depressed. The rest of her exam looked good. She was given a prescription for pain medication and discharge. She went to the local Walmart with a family member to get the prescription filled. While she was there, she began vomiting and collapsed. An ambulance was called and the plaintiff was transported back to the hospital where she was seen by an emergency physician. They did a second CT scan. Now, the patient was awake and alert when she came into the department, but they did a second scan, which uh, did not show a subdural, did not show an epidural, didn't show anything except that original fracture. So they let the patient go home to be seen by the primary care physician the next morning. At that time, a th because the uh, patient had some more nausea, had a little trouble moving her arm, a third CT scan was performed. So now she's had three CT scans of her head in the last 12 hours. So if she doesn't have something real bad in 20 years, she is going to have a lymphoma or yeah. something from this, Rick. In any event, it was done with dye, and it revealed a vertebral artery dissection. Ooh. Uh, and, and she went on at that moment in time while she was there to have an, an infarction. So the real question is, in this case, did the second ER doc do something wrong? Families, and, and this is the hilarity of this case. The family says if you'd only admitted her for observation, when she started to have more symptoms, you could have given her TPA. Mm. Have you have you ever mm. seen the study on TPA for a traumatic vertebral artery dissection? Have you ever we're, seen it? We're doing enough arguing over the study of stuff in stroke, no less vertebral artery dissections. Let me just say that that was the that's what the plaintiffs did. They presented this as a stroke case. Her stroke was secondary to this vertebral artery dissection. And they said the standard of care is to give TPA. Now, I've never heard of that, particularly in somebody who's just had a fracture into a sinus. 
I, I wouldn't even think about that. But what do you think? I, I mean, who's well, got the logical arguments here? Well, don't tell me the outcome just yet. I won't. Well, I think that, you know, unfortunately, the devil's in the details here. What was the extent of, particularly on the second visit, the assessment performed by the emergency physician? In it terms was a good of- assessment. It was a good assessment. This patient walked, talked. They, they, they did a neuro exam. They did all those things, none of which were positive on the second examination. Okay. Um, and I guess after some period of observation, she was feeling better or something to that effect. She wasn't feeling worse or developing new symptoms. No. And so, not at that time. No. And well, it doesn't seem unreasonable based on the fact that uh, nothing was shown twice. And CTs nicely show blood of any consequence. You get a little tiny little bleed there. It's a, uh, that's going to be of no clinical consequence. So, you know, I'm t- tending to be in favor of the disposition of the second doctor. I, this is not a case where you should try to get them in and out within, you know, 30 minutes. Uh, I'm, I, this is the kind of the case let them hang around a little while and see how things are going. And I think most physicians would. They would be kind of spooked by the fact that this person just left and now they collapsed in the Walmart kind of thing that, that these doctors are going to be relatively careful on making this disposition. And that being the case with a second normal CT, I find it difficult, unless there's other things here to the contrary, to fault the second doctor. Well, let me just say that the plaintiff's expert, a well-known emergency physician, high in the ranks of ASAP, in fact, at one time had the highest spot, was willing to testify that this is egregious care, should have been picked up. However, the Virginia defense team was successful, and uh, this was a defense verdict in favor of the emergency physician. whoop de doo I could have saved them a lot of time and money. Hey, listen, I got to tell you that I have a substantial problem, substantial problem, and I hope that every other ASAP member does. When a former president of ASAP uses that title as a means of becoming an expert witness, I think that that is total misuse of that title. And I know doctors, and you know doctors, who have been ASAP presidents who have done that, and I, I can't. I, I think that that is uh, sensible. Uh, I think it's bad. I think well, it's really bad. These are not experts. They are the leader. They happen to be voted to be the chairman of the board of the of ASAP. They're, they're, they may they may be total idiots, but they're uh, politically savvy. <laughs> except for you, you're, you're speaking to a former president here, Rick. Uh, said, and except for you, except for me. All right. Hey, listen. I didn't hear you reaffirming my uh, assertion about. I th- First of all, I, I think that, Come that on, help me what you say is based on your abilities as a physician. Being the president of an organization is more your abilities as a politician. And those are different questions. But when they ask you, are you professor at the University of Michigan? The answer is, yes, I am. That doesn't mean you're an expert either. Exactly. So, so we show all kinds of stuff, Rick at the time of trial, which the, the jury is allowed to take, utilize in forming their opinion as to the validity of statement. But you're right. If, if all they're doing is completely defending the case or prosecuting the case by saying you're a former president of the college, so you know, that's not correct. That's, that, that's an incorrect use of the uh, title. Absolutely. I have no, I have no problem with that, but the listeners should understand that, that uh, particularly for our foreign listeners, that there's no requirement that you be an absolute expert in pulmonary embolus. You're supposed to have the reasonable knowledge of a practicing emergency physician at that moment in time, because you haven't done research in PE doesn't mean you cannot speak to remember the phrase, the standard of care. You may not know anything about what's happening in the research at that moment in time. That's a different question. By the way, I don't think the jury cares or understands. Well, obviously not, because those who do research are 
not necessarily in a position to talk about what is the standard of care. You work at a university. You've got all of these other residents. You have backup in every specialty known to man at 13 nanoseconds. And we got this poor doctor in JAPIP working in a community hospital, single doctor coverage. And how does this quote unquote researcher expert know what the standard of care is in the community? Well, that raises the issue, standard of care where? And uh, we would like to think that a standard of care is based upon where you are at that moment in time. California has 12,000 visit emergency departments in the sticks, and it has uh, 300,000 visit emergency departments in Los Angeles. It depends on what you've got and where you are, but at least in this case, doctor did okay. All right. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm two for two right now. You're doing well. Another case. Next case. Failure to diagnose is always a problem in emergency medicine, but in this case, it wasn't. Listen to this. A 52-year-old man, he seems like a good guy. He's got a hobby. He's got an old uh, fire tr- fire engine. Well, he and his friends are working on this fire engine. He's 40 feet up in the bucket or the end of the ladder or whatever it is, and he falls. Now, that's not a good thing. No. He is taken to a major trauma center. I mean, the biggest one in that state. The emergency docs get him bundled up pretty well. They call down surgery. Within a half hour, there is evidence on the chest X-ray that the mediastinum is widening. This is not a medical dissection. This is a traumatic rupture of the aorta. Does that sound like a good thing to you, Rick? Generally not a good idea. No. Blood pressure falling. No. uh, Pulse going up. Now, the thoracic team is in the operating room with another emergency at that moment in time. They're doing the best they can to put together another team to take this person upstairs and they die. Now, the family brings an action saying they knew or should have known when he walked in the door that he was, uh, you know, about to die and that they, that there was unnecessary delay in getting to the operating room. And that's what killed this guy. So trial goes on and Rick, what do you think the issues are? What's going to happen here? Well, on the face of it, the uh, hospital should win. They're not obligated to have five teams of thoracic surgeons waiting around because now we got two cases and we need to have a third. So that's not really the standard of care whatsoever, I don't think. Um, and yet this person probably sustained a pretty much fatal injury. Now, he did get to the hospital, but there are lots of people who get to the hospital and who die. And so I, my, in, my intuition is that this would have been a fairly heroic surgery and that it takes a little time to identify, you know, that there is pathology going on. I mean, was he shocky when he went, walked in the door or rolled in the door? Maybe not. So my view of it is, is that um, it's a, unfortunate, the outcome here. You should have not been farting around with a fire engine at 40 feet and that the hospital should not wind up paying. Well, that's exactly what the uh, Kentucky jury thought in this case. They thought that you're right, it's unfortunate, but poo-poo does occur. And they were they were pretty well set up. There was no question here that within a half hour of arrival, they knew what the issues were. They knew that this was expanding. And by the way, they had to work him up for the other injuries that he had at that moment in time and, you know, put splints on the legs and all oh, that no, kind no, of stuff. That, you know, there are priorities. There are priorities. And, and, uh, and your, the sexting or rupturing gets a little uh, ahead of the list. It gets to the head of the list. But then again, the emergency docs can't take him to the operating right. room. And so actually the entire hospital was, what, was let off the hook in this case. Um, over three, I think we I, we could get rid of the entire courts, lawyers, all this. Just give me a call, and I'll figure it out for you. I'll give you my answer. Well, you know that's what the British do. They take a case, and they get one reasonable guy who is certified a professor in that area, and uh, they don't have a battle of experts. They ask him a simple question: Is this reasonable or unreasonable? And if he says, "Well, it's reasonable," 
then that's it. If it's unreasonable, then they come up with a, a some recompense for the family. But I think it makes it less intense and less intimidating to the doctors than the um, kind of very aggressive system which we have going at this moment in time. I don't, Rick, do we have time for one more good case? Actually, we have time for one more good case and two or three bad cases. <laughs> uh, let me see here. Here's one, Rick, that, uh, that, that I think is a miserable, tough problem. 23-year-old young man, healthy, isn't on any medicine, has no family history and nothing, walks in during the cold and flu season at a fairly famous hospital in uh, Boston. He's complaining of chest tightness, cough, and fever. He does have a fever. He does have a cough, non-productive. He was seen by the physician who ordered a chest x-ray. The diagnosis is, Ricky, tell me what the diagnosis is. Uh, Bronchitis. Of course, that's what he calls it. He says, you got a fever, you got a cough, you're not producing any sputum, you got no no vomiting, no diarrhea, no nothing. It's bronchitis. Okay. He was sent home with prescriptions for Vicodin for his pain, and he was put on an antibiotic. Now, don't ask me why he was given an antibiotic, because the last time I checked, antibiotics don't help viruses much. He was told to rest. Unfortunately, the next morning, he's found dead in bed at home. Myocarditis. Absolutely. But the point, and, and, and this. Hey, listen, have we talked to this case beforehand? Well, we, have we, no. Have, have we, you, you and I discussed this case no. beforehand, doctor? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Rick, it's a case. See, that's, that is hindsight bias. I'm giving you a case. You have to get the, this right because it became a lawsuit because there are plenty of people. There are thousands of ER docs who sent people home with the exact same symptoms. I agree. And the, the claim was that uh, all such patients, and this is a statement from the uh, expert, plaintiff's expert, all such 23-year-olds need to have an EKG. I'd like to know the name of that plaintiff's expert. No, I'm not going to tell you that right now because I don't want any more problems than I've already got. But <laughs> No, that's not right at all. Well, he, he gets worse than that because he opined that uh, had this person been diagnosed with viral myocarditis uh, at the 90% level, this patient would have been saved. Now, I think that's total crap. If you know a treatment for myocarditis that I don't know about, Tell me what it is, because I don't think we I think the course of myocarditis depends on the individual and how how much it's inflamed the sack of the heart. Well, you know, myocarditis is we just see these cases. They are being at the wrong place at the wrong time. It's really, really hard to pick these up. You see these cases all the time about you know, children going in with viral syndromes and, you know, they wake up dead the next day. Um, actually, they don't wake up at all. And um, th- this is, and it's kind of like, how can you pick these cases up? They are needles in the haystack. And the assertion that this person should have had an EKG is just patently absurd when we're talking about a numerator here of one and a denominator of 50, 100, 200,000 cases of bronchitis that are that's a viral illness and so this gets into the greg henry acceptable miss rate kind of thing to a certain extent because there are a, a a couple of clues a couple of clues one of them is disproportionate tachycardia that i think we all should try to be kind of alert to if and your temperature is 101 and you're 23 years of age what is and and you have a pulse rate of 118 wouldn't you say that that all sort of fits? Well, is that what his pulse rate was? Well, let's say for the sake of well, discussion. Just, because- you know, I'm going to say that with 101 temperature, that is a little bit on the high side if it's 118, 120. Oh, you're waffling now, Rick. No, I, I, no, I, you know, I, I, it is easy to be a, easier to be a Monday morning quarterback, that's for sure. But that is one of the things you need to look for. The other thing is is these patients are frequently short of breath. 
But then again, so maybe a bronchitis patient that doesn't have anything wrong with their heart. Um, but it's certainly something to look for because you're looking at, in essence, you're looking at failure. You're looking at a heart that is not pumping out uh, with its usual vigor and you're getting a little backup. And so this is now not a airway problem. It's a cardiovascular problem. So it's like, but these are all tough cases. And every time the issue is uh, something stupid, like, well, you should have gotten an EKG. Obviously, this person should not have been found guilty. Well, let me just tell you that this was a $2.9 million decision in the state of Massachusetts. And all I can say is, I think we have to take one minute out and say, no matter what happened here, I'd feel bad if I were the parents of a 23-year-old kid who we put him to bed and he's dead in the morning. It's a serious problem. The problem is it's not the doctor's problem. And we've now decided in this country that somebody's got to be at fault. And, you know, it's very hard to blame God because he's hard to, he's hard to ser- serve process on. Have you ever tried to deliver a summons and complaint to God? You can't do it, Rick. It, you just can't get it done. Well, I don't think that this case should have been lost based on the facts as I heard them. But uh, then again, to be fair, you need to know all the facts that were presented. There may have been some mitigating circumstances. I had a very good friend, actually, who was an emergency physician who contracted viral myocarditis. And the consequences of this are not necessarily that they go away when this virus goes away. You know, the heart can be permanently uh, weakened by this process. And this unfortunate friend was jogging and dropped dead. You know, there's nothing you can do. about. Yes, I do know him and uh, very prominent in California ASAP. One more case. The plaintiff's family brought this action on behalf of the uh, patient who went to his chiropractor for a crick in the neck. It was felt that the ideal treatment for this is to manipulate the neck. What happened, Rick? Vertebral artery dissection. Well, Exactly. And, and uh, not only did his vertebral artery dissect and he stroked, but this was high up. This is at C1, C2. Usually they're a little lower than this, but they got him right at the top. And as you're well aware, if it's above C4, you have trouble breathing. Uh, so down he went. And if you ever really hated somebody, you'd have the outcome that this kid had. Because he was, he of course is intubated, somebody breathing for him, yet he's awake, alert, he can't move anything. Horrible. He's the, he's the, horrible. Oh, he's the corpse with living eyes. Alexander Dumont wrote about that in The Count of Monte Cristo. And it's exactly right. This is a horrible outcome. I don't know why anybody would believe that you're allowed to twist the neck beyond physiologic limits. I don't understand it. These cases do come up, but uh, just in case you have a family member who thinks they, they need to have the crick in their neck taken care of, <laughs> I, I would think about this very carefully. This is, uh, this is not a good case. What was the uh, number value on this one? Actually, if this had been in New York, it would have been $20 million. This was in Alabama. And it was 575000 That's a bargain. That's a travesty. That's, that's a travesty, tra- actually. Well, I guess the issue is, 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 was it a travesty because that's not nearly enough money to sustain this person for however their mystical <laughs> life they're going to lead for however long it's going to be? Or was it really about the, was the um, chiropractor guilty of malpractice. I mean, this is another kind of thing where they do this. This is their bread and butter. They do this every day. And um, we only hear about these cases because we get the uh, see the bad results. But, you know, again, it's the numerator and, and the denominator. How many people get their neck adjusted in the United States of America every year? You know, and I think, you know, some people swear by chiropractors. Uh, I, I don't really have any objective evidence in one way or the other, but um, or, you know, osteopaths who do similar kinds of things. So, you know, 
was he negligent because of this um, outcome? Or did the outcome say he was negligent? Well, that was the exact debate that went on in this case because his experts, of course, said he performed standard chiropractic technique. And they certainly don't have a requirement for for literature backup of the results that we might expect in the uh, the allopathic community. But there's uh, no question that he produced experts who said, this is what we do. We do it all over the country. This is the unfortunate case. Now, to me, I, ju- I just don't think that there's uh, adequate indication that this <laughs> procedure works. But then again, you're right. Some people like going to the chiropractor. And I think if it's in the low back, have at it. You and I don't have the solution to low back pain. I don't think any person has the solution to low back pain. And when I see all those patients come in postoperatively from the orthopods with their low back pain and the complications, you know what? I don't care what you do down there. It just is as a general warning to the public, if your neck's painful while they're doing it, stop. It doesn't sound like a good idea to me. Well, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to predict this because it's done in a nanosecond. They just going to... And it's kind of like over. Your your head now is pointing in 180 degrees where it wasn't before. And so it's a very rapidly done. It's not a slow, gentle kind of thing as far as I'm aware. So it's either happens or it doesn't happen. I think that this is a tough one, and especially because the amount of money is $500,000. Now, what is that supposed to represent? Is that like pain and suffering? Can't be. Is that uh, medical care? Can't be. What is that $500,000? All I know is that 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 was the amount paid out in this case. Now, I certainly hope that that the, the state has a program for people who are injured like this. All I can say is it's very strange. And uh, as you know, this does vary hugely state by state. So there is no, there is no obvious consensus in the country about what things are worth. You know, the insurers, the reinsurers in Scandinavia hate doing medical malpractice because if they're insuring a boatload of shoes coming from uh, China to the U.S., they know what the boat and the shoes are worth. If it sinks, they know what they're paying. How do you know what a dead baby is worth in Alabama versus New York City? I, I think that there is no consistency with what we do in this country, I promise you. Well, I got I to gotta agree. And so that's why we're all afraid of malpractice, because there is this crapshoot element in it. Like, you feeling lucky, punk? Uh, you yeah. just don't know. Like that case that you talked about where there was $2.9 or something like that. I don't. Based on the presentation, they shouldn't have won, won anything. I know. But, you know, it is the sh- it is show business. And uh, anybody who doesn't think that, I'm going to be presenting a course for, for Michigan ASAP about expert witness. And it's very clear that young doctors come to that thinking that this is going to be a fight of scientists. And it almost never is. This is a fight of whose show looks the best and how bad does the jury feel about the injured party. And we'd like to think that there's science here, but there isn't. While you're looking up your wine of the month thing, of course, we have to remind people that there are still a few more EMA courses going on. The emergency medicine boot camp course for the PAs and NPs of this world who uh, want this intensive course in uh, emergency medicine that's going to be at the Paris Hotel in Las Vegas in July. And what else? Uh, And we're starting up our board review courses for your poor (laughs) slobs that have to recertify this year. God forbid. All right. Well, for one thing, uh, we're going to do a wine of the month by looking back. We're going to look at California, which they claim in 2004, all the big names they, say that the, the, they, 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 claim. they claim. They made me that, do it. The, they made me do it. The Cabernet Sauvignon of 2004 is one of the great years of California. There's no question about it. But since 2004, there's a new player in the wine market, and that is the Chinese at a very high level. Now, I've reported on this program before that probably as good a winery as there is in the world is Schrader. It is beaten. It is, it is clearly at the level of the best of, of the French. And Schrader, again, what, what Parker did in this review is he went back and retasted in 2014 
the 2004s. It'll tell you what to buy for the money. Schrader, is it expensive? Yeah, it's between $300 and $650 a bottle. Oh, good. But he, wait a second. He says it's world class. Now, down the street, across the column, wherever it is, in Alexander Valley, you can buy, if you want to buy a great wine for your wife for some event, take it to a friend. The, the Chateau Souverain is as good a wine as, as I've ever tasted, and you can buy it for 50 bucks a bottle. Now, here's the craziness. Here's the craziness. The Chinese have now adopted this 2004, particularly from some of the wineries. There's a place uh, in Oakville called Screaming Eagle. You may have heard of that, Rick. It's a very, very well-thought-of winery, but it's become sort of the way to show you have money in, in China is you serve Screaming Eagle and the 2004 Cabernet Sauvignon from Screaming Eagle is going at $2,500 a bottle. Rick, I, I, w- I would have to call you a screaming idiot. Yes. Well, that's exactly right. What's happened to the world where the place down the street has got a good one for 50 and you're spending $2,500 a bottle? You know, having rich Chinese uh, has really increased wine sales from California. And I guess... I guess as long as they've got the Chinese, they're all done with us white guys because they can, uh, if you can get 2,500 bucks a bottle, can you believe that? So Henry's recommendation, go get the Chateau Souverain, 50 bucks, great wine. And I mean, even Parker, who's, who's tasted everything in the world, rates it like a 93. He says, this wine holds its own with the best in the world, 50 bucks a bottle, Rick. Okay, Greg, we're signing off there. That was the uh, May issue of Risk Management Monthly. I thank you very much. I'm going to be seeing you in June uh, when you come out here to see your daughter and to teach at our EMA course down at the marina. And uh, we'll do another issue there for sure. Probably one in the meantime, too. Okay, Greg, thanks much. Talk with you next time. Bye for now. Bye-bye. 